0: We invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter, <clears throat> and uh, I want to just acknowledge what will be apparent to to most of us after we read this, which is uh, these are weird verses for Mother's Day, um, uh, and and we'll read them in just a second. But I want to give you some context, some preface, so you're not going, what in the world? Um, Al Mohler, who is a, a prominent um, a pastor and theologian in the Baptist community. Uh, says that these verses that that we're about to read, these verses are some of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, We're gonna gonna read the the mother of all difficult passages uh, here on Mother's Day. God help us. Uh, Let's stand in honor of God's Word, and I'm gonna read verses one through eight in chapter six. Uh, Therefore, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake and is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for your words, um, even words of warning. We thank you for the the love and the caution uh, that is behind them. And we pray that we would take these words to heart, that they would uh, bear fruit in our lives, that they would change us. Uh, and remind uh, help our lives to remind others of of you. we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, wow, right? Um, the, those are those are sober words, they're kind of blunt, but uh, but but they present us with a couple of questions that we need to to acknowledge right out of the gate and and maybe you know you're going, well, i I, I can see why maybe those would be. Uh, a little bit blunt, but I don't really understand the problem. Why Why? why is this difficult? Well, it raises two um, significant questions. First, this language of like leaving behind the uh, the elementary doctrine of Christ. Does Hebrews want us to leave behind Jesus? Like moving on to bigger and better things? Is that what it's saying? No, it's not saying that. We'll talk about that. And Hebrews seems to indicate that a Christian uh, can lose his or, his or her salvation. Is that what Hebrews is saying? And no, it, it does not say that. So um, let me maybe pop those pressure quirks for you if you're if you're anxious about those things. But but we do want to wrestle with well, 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 what does it say? Um, what what is being communicated here? And and looking at these verses, we're going to talk about how Jesus is our necessary foundation. And we we lay our lives on top of him. We build our lives on top of him uh, so that we don't make uh, what would otherwise be a contemptuous choice, you know, uh, treating Jesus with contempt. Uh, um, So let's talk about this foundation. The elementary doctrine of Christ is what verse one says. Um, and, and what I want to reassure you of what, what Hebrews is telling us is that maturity is not leaving behind us the elementary doctrine of Christ as we sort of graduate and move on to better things, right? Uh, that's not what, what Hebrews has in mind. In fact, there's no better, more, uh, foundational thing for us than, than Jesus and and what he has for us. And so, um, Let's let's keep a couple of things in mind here that's that's important. Um you'll you'll notice when you look at verse 1 Hebrews doesn't say therefore let us leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ meaning that Hebrews wants us to th- to think vertically rather than than horizontally so if you are in a in a downtown uh, with with you know tall buildings, maybe you know skyscrapers and, and so on, uh, and uh, and you leave a building in a downtown you know urban context, and you 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 exit those the, the front lobby and you go across the street to another building. Uh, in that case, you're leaving behind the building that you were in, and you're going into another building. And that building you left behind really has no relevance for you anymore. Uh, it's not supporting you. It's not you know uh, surrounding you or protecting you or, or sheltering you. Um, now, what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is our foundation, and so it's asking us to think vertically um, and 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 imagine that first building downtown with lots of lots of floors and so on. What Hebrews is saying is is that you're gonna get in an elevator and and leave behind the ground floor, but. But please know that that foundation, that ground floor has tremendous relevance for you as you move in that elevator, you know, to the second and third and 10th and 20th and 30th floor or whatever. If you don't have a good foundation, uh, the higher you go, the more peril you're in. And so that's why you're, you're very, very thankful. You don't, you don't leave a strong foundation. And Hebrews is telling us, think vertically, not horizontally. You don't, you don't leave Jesus behind you. But yes, we want to to, um, leave that ground floor and move on to maturity, which is sort of the second thought here that's implied. We're not just laying a foundation, we're we're called to build something on top of it, right? Like how kind of um, fruitless and pointless would it be to go through the the time and the energy and the expense of uh, drawing up the blueprints, and planning uh, and excavating uh, and, uh, and, and and you know pouring footers and laying rebar and and then you know getting the the concrete in and, and laying that foundation, pouring that foundation. you've got this nice, strong, sturdy slab, and then that you know builder just quits and gives up and says, well that's that's enough, and they just pitch a little pop tent on it and call it a day. you know that's sort of fruitless and not not very helpful. Um, You wanna build on top of the foundation that you've worked hard uh, to pour. And and, and so Hebrews is saying our foundation is Jesus, and we want to build something on top of that foundation that is glorifying to God and that demonstrates the sturdiness of that foundation that's gonna glorify Jesus. And we're not gonna stop at sort of the basic principles, we wanna move on to maturity and, uh, and continue to, to build our lives and make our lives like, uh, like what's described elsewhere uh, in the New Testament, where we are a temple uh, in which God lives. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit and we want our lives to be a building that brings Him glory, a building where He uh, inhabits and so on. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter three, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So I, I hope that makes clear but Hebrews is not telling us that, well, Jesus was kid stuff and we don't really need him anymore in maturity. No, we absolutely do. We're just building on top of him. We're leaving the ground floor. We're not leaving. Glorify God is going to be laid on the foundation of Jesus behind us. Uh, instead, what is that foundation? Hebrews talks about the foundation of repentance from, from dead works and of faith toward God, right? Um, when... Uh, Martin Luther, who most of you know who he is, but if you're new uh, to the church and new to to the Bible and so on. um, So Martin Luther was one of the Protestant reformers, and uh, he was starting to just connect the dots himself on what is the gospel. What does it mean to have Jesus and his righteousness be the foundation for his own life? And he's bringing up some points for discussion in the church, saying, hey, I think we need to get back to these basics. We need to get back to Jesus as our foundation. And so he draws up a long list of of topics for discussion called the 95 Theses and nails these to the door of the church in Wittenberg and says, we got to talk about this. And the very first point that he wanted to make, the most foundational and important thing that he wanted to state among those 95 theses, was this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, and he references Matthew 4.17, Jesus willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Uh, Jesus gave us, a masterful uh, parable to understand what this element of our foundation really is. And he, and he told this parable in Luke 18, and, he, and he's talking to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. Uh, these would be the folks who need <laughs> repentance from dead works, you know, their works that they think, you know, would make them righteous before God, their works that they think make God approve of saying, why can't you be more religious and, and, and get your act together like, like us, right? Um, so Jesus is telling this parable against those religious people. And he says, two men went up, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a professional religious person, and the other a tax collector, somebody who everybody regards as like a villain. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, and I want you to imagine coming up in front of our our congregation, standing here for everybody to hear, and this is your prayer. God I thank you that I am not like other people like extortioners and unjust the adulterers or even uh, like this tax collector behind me. I fast twice a week, I tithe all that I get and uh you know and and he's and he's just boasting about himself like the way Jesus Actually, tells the parable the way it's written in in Luke, uh, Jesus kind of makes this suggestion that he's not even praying to God; he's praying to himself, with boasting about himself, treating you know the the the, the other person with contempt, and then Jesus you know pivots and he says, "But the tax collector, uh, standing far off, didn't even get into the sanctuary; just barely comes through those doors, sort of where John Pearson's at, you know." Repentant John Pearson. Um, And and he's standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Rather than the self-righteous person. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, so this gives us a tremendous um, uh, insight into w- what is repentance. I, and we we hear that word, it's a very loaded word, it's a very churchy word. And we, we sometimes assume that repentance is, is what we do when we're sorry for bad stuff that we've done. And certainly with turning from the good stuff we do that we think or we assume is what justifies us, what what makes us right with God, what's sort of impressive to God and says, oh, you know, boy, I wanna have him or her on my team. They've really got their act together. No, repentance is, is something that we need so that we not only turn from, you know, sinful works of unrighteousness, but so that we also turn from dead works of righteousness because none of it matters before God if it's done in our own strength for our own credit. Does that make sense? This is foundational. This is fundamental to what Jesus preached. You know, Martin Luther considered it fundamental to the gospel. We do too. And, uh, and that's why repentance and faith are what, you know, is, is what, um, the in terms of getting into heaven, repentance and faith give us that ticket rather than, you know, our behavior. Uh, so, um, moving on, you look at verse 2, and another part of that foundation is instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. And some people kind of scratch their head. What do you, what do you mean washings? Well, literally the word is baptisms. Um, and these are initiatory rites. So we're, we're, not, um, we're recognizing that there's a foundation that gets us into a relationship with God, these initiatory rites. Right? We, we look at baptism, and you go, yeah, that's when somebody you know is beginning... Uh, to become a part of the communion of saints. Uh, when somebody uh, who hasn't uh, made a profession of faith or hasn't been baptized, you know, they, they're gonna become baptized when they're a, a believer. When somebody who is a, a covenant member of a faith, and you think about laying on of hands, when do we do that? Anoint them with oil. and you know, you'll, We'll pray and we'll, we'll lay hands on somebody who's sick. You know, we can anoint them with oil and lay hands on them and ask God to begin uh, the healing process. Uh, we'll, we'll lay hands on people and pray for them when they're being commissioned uh, for a, a mission trip or you know, some work of service. We, we lay hands on uh, our brothers and commission them and they're going to become an elder or a deacon. These are initiatory things. They, they, they get the ball rolling. Um, and, and so those are important, but we also want to be interested not only in initiatory things, but we also want to, to be interested in what continues and, and grows us and bears fruit. So, um, you know, when you go into somebody's home, you don't just hang out in the foyer. You, 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 you're not content to, to stand there, you know, um, in, the, in the front lobby. You want to go in and you want to make yourself at home. And that's what maturity is, is calling us to. Uh, and that is summarized really in the language of the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. We use the Apostles' Creed, for instance, to summarize what this foundation might look like, you know, some of the doctrines, that the elementary uh, truths of, of the gospel. Uh, we, we've we recited these already today, things like how we believe in God the Father Almighty, we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, how on the third day He rose again from the dead, how He ascended into heaven, how He's seated at the right hand of God and we believe in the church and we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And, and we believe these things, right? Do you? These are the elementary doctrines. These are foundational things. And are we prepared for things like resurrection, nation of Jesus? Um, Hebrews is calling us to, to build on the foundation of Jesus, to not Leave that foundation behind us, but to build on top of it so that our lives would bring glory to him, that we would not remain infants, but would grow to maturity so that ultimately we would not uh, make a contemptuous choice, but enjoy the the benefits of Christ. Now, the next verses are where people kind of go, I don't know about this. Verses four and five talk about those who uh, experience a lot of uh, God's graces. They, they receive a lot of his gifts, but they don't recognize and they don't um, settle on Jesus as the giver of those gifts. Uh, and it says that it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So it sort of sounds like Hebrews is saying, you can become a Christian, you can be saved and then lose that salvation. But, but we just got done singing about how there's a love that will not let us go, right? That we can rest our weary soul on him and, and he's not gonna let us go. That, that he's the one who's holding us fast. And we can turn to other places in the Bible where Paul would say things like in Second Corinthians 5, that if anyone is in Christ, that person's a new creation. They're not just an improvement of the old. They're altogether different. And, and so does that mean that Paul's saying you become a new creation and then revert back to the old? No. Uh, You can turn to Philippians 1 and and we hear him saying that that he's sure of this, he's certain that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. That that God is not the contractor who's going to start something and not finish it. We can't be saved and then lose that salvation. We can't become a a temple in construction and then Jesus walks away from from that, that project. In Jude 24, this beautiful blessing to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before. Look, he's not going to abandon us. He's not going uh, uh, to adopt us into his family as his sons and daughters and then disown us. He's not going to engraft us into his body as his hands and his his head, his ears, his eyes, you know, members of his body, and, and then, like, what, amputate us? That, that's not the way this works. When we're saved, we're saved. When we're made new, we're new. You yeah, we stumble and we, we have fits and starts, but if Jesus is your foundation, you know, he's going to hold you fast. So then what is Hebrews saying? right? There's this debate about this section, which seems to be describing a person who was once a Christian and now has lost their salvation. But really, God gives many, many graces to all people so that they might call on him and be saved. But that doesn't mean that just because they've received those graces that they are saved. Does that make sense? So we, we kind of get... Um, a lot of a lot of times when when Christians get to these verses we get hung up on trying to explain how this person was really never uh, a true believer and and then but we forget to ask ourselves well well wait a minute if these experiences are are genuine then then do they have any bearing on my own life right like apparently there are people who can you know experience like sense of enlightenment and, and can taste the heavenly gift and so on. There are people who can have those experiences and, and, and not be saved. What about people who have not even had those experiences? How should, how should they regard, you know? is are a good um, diagnostic for us, for us to just kind of be honest with ourselves, be honest about our experience of God's grace in our lives. And ask ourselves, have we experienced an enlightening through the gospel? Um, And again, this isn't to perfection, and there's going to be repentance along the way, but nonetheless, there ought to be a sense for a person who is saying that Jesus is the foundation of my life, and he's saved me from my sins, he's given me a hope and a future, that person ought to have some experience of God's grace to them that allows us to say, you know what, I, I know darkness. I, I know the reality of sin and, and Jesus is my hope and he is my light and he is giving me that experience of being rescued, that I am no longer of the dominion of darkness but part of the kingdom of, of his light and his love, right? So not perfectly, but to a degree, right? So Jesus would say, hey, be careful. In, in Luke 11, he says, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. There is a way to kind of be fooled, to, 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 to kid ourselves that we know this grace, but it's not really saving us. Uh, go on to the next one. We've tasted the heavenly gift and the goodness of God's Word, right? Like, is this an experience that is true for us? That we have a, a real sense, not just sort of hypothetically, but but personally, can be able to say, Yeah, I have a sense of God's satisfaction in my soul. I, I, I love Him. I enjoy Him. He's good. That when the psalmist says, Taste and see that the Lord is good, we can say to a degree, Yes, not perfectly, but yes, I agree that there is sweetness when I, I come to His table and, and receive His body and blood. That there is joy in his word, that there are certainly things that are confusing in here, but there is just satisfaction and rest and goodness here, that we have an experience of this grace. And another, this is one that actually, admittedly, uh, can can be manipulated a lot, where people can make a big show of their experience of the Holy Spirit, pretending like they um, aren't just saved, but that they're, you know, sort of these uh, Christian superstars. But listen, how can we say that we really have Jesus as our foundation if we don't have at least the share in the Holy Spirit that would help others, not just ourselves, but others to recognize, yeah, you, there, there, there's a difference, there's a change in us. Uh, that looks like the Holy Spirit's evidence and fingerprints in our lives. And not just the gifts, but the fruit. Like the the share of the Holy Spirit's love. The share of the Holy Spirit's peace and patience and kindness and goodness. That that is something that people can see that we share in, in terms of these graces. And the the last one that uh, Hebrews talks about is, do we have a real sense of the powers of the age to come? Look, if it's possible uh, for like an imposter, right, to, to have a sense and to share in the grace of the power of the age to come and still not be saved, then how can any of us say that we're saved if we don't have a sense at all of the power of the age to come? What do we mean by this? We're putting all of our eggs in the world's baskets of power. If we don't have a sense of the power of the age to come, then then, then all we're left with is this present age, which means that if we can't get justice now, all is lost. And that, that puts a person in a position where they They have to demand their pound of flesh today. They have to have justice immediately. And look, the the church ought to be an echo and a reflection of Jesus who came, you know, preaching God's justice and his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But listen, listen. This world is not all there is. There is an age to come, right? And the power is the power and the ability that if we know that justice is coming, it's not on us anymore. I don't have to give in to retaliation. I don't have to demand, you know, people pay up. And that lets us be gracious. That lets us be patient. That lets us be forgiving. But if we don't have an experience of the power of the age to come, what inevitably is going to happen is that, one, we're either going to give up on Jesus and his justice and walk away, or we will turn the church and Christianity into a mishmash hodgepodge that looks very much like the world and nothing like heaven. So... If we don't have a taste i mean if if it's possible for others to have a taste of these graces and yet still not be saved, I have to ask a a challenging um sober question. Do we have a taste of these graces? There are those that can have a taste of this and still not be saved, can we be saved and not have a taste of these all right well let's 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 kind of keep going because I don't want to stay in that. Place of despair, right? Like we we don't want to. We want to be comforted. We want these graces in our life, um, and and yet it's saying it's impossible to restore these folks uh, again to repentance since they've crucified again the Son of God to their own harm, holding them up to contempt. Um, How should we understand this? What's what's kind of a, a light for us in the midst of what seems like a very very difficult truth? Um, I think there's help in, in considering the fact that, of course, um, stealing is a sin, right? Um, we, could, we could acknowledge that from the Ten Commandments. Stealing is a sin. But I want you to think of all sin as sort of, in the macro sense, as a form of stealing. Uh, and, and give you a couple of examples. Um, we all know what plagiarism is. But if I had told you that uh, you know what this was a tricky week and I was kind of pressed for time and so you know them and and uh, but didn't cite them didn't just didn't credit them um, didn't credit Al Mohler or whoever you know in, in in the sermon and was just kind of passing it off as my own stuff right that would that would not be good that would be plagiarism. But it would be an entirely different form of stealing or plagiarism uh, if I didn't tell you that this entire sermon was written by ChatGPT. I didn't write any of this and I'm just kind of reading the manuscript. Uh, that would be an entirely different thing, right? Because I'm, I'm taking an idea that doesn't belong to me and passing it off as my own. That's a, that's a form of stealing. And what about at work? We use the word embezzlement to describe you know, taking things from you know, the workplace that don't belong to us. Uh, things like paper clips, right? Whatever. Who cares? Nobody cares about taking a paperclip from work, but you do care when somebody steals your lunch out of the break room refrigerator. Like, wait a minute, that's my lunch. Where'd my lunch go? Nobody asked you for that. Nobody said, "Hey, I'm I'm taking your lunch." Well, at least you're being honest about stealing from me, you know. And then you would feel entirely different about the person who's not just taking, stealing your lunch, but stealing thousands, tens, and thousands of dollars. From stealing is a sin, but all sin is sort of a form of stealing because sin is failing to recognize the giver of all of our gifts and then taking those gifts and employing them for selfish purposes. Um, it's one thing, you know, for somebody outside of the church to be held accountable for, for that kind of, of life and attitude and, and, and disposition. Um, they're going to, yeah, they are going to stand before their creator and their maker and, and, and have to give an answer for why would they live their, independently of the one who's given them their, their mind and their body and their skills and their talents? Why, why would they live in such a way that diverts attention for, from the generous and loving benefactor that has blessed them all their lives, right? So there, there's going to be an accountability for that. But isn't there a greater accountability Isn't there a greater judgment for those who who receive not only those graces, but also the graces of of being a part of his Christian community without ever having the foundation of Jesus, without ever giving him honor and credit for all of the blessings, you know, that we've reviewed here in Hebrews. Look, um, those who called for Jesus' crucifixion 2,000 years ago, came to a point where they concluded that he didn't have value to them or to anyone anymore, and it's better just to get rid of him. That, that something else was more valuable to them than Jesus, so he therefore becomes disposable. He's not worth anything to them anymore. And that sentiment is at the heart still today of any and all who who you know even can can learn the tenets of our faith, can learn the Bible, can learn uh, the gospel, but then decide that Jesus really isn't worth anything to them, and they crucify him all over again. But on the other hand, when you and I uh, hear the the message of the cross, when we when we learn that Jesus is our substitute, sin bearer, that. He takes the curse on himself in our place because he loved us and he gave himself for us. And then he was was raised from death to life and we, because we're united to him, have new life in him. We have a hope and a great love for us. That stops us in our tracks. That becomes worth everything to us. And I know there's there's still inconsistency that remains in our lives, and we still stumble, and we fall, and we repent, and we get back, and and we follow him again. But but at the end of the day, we say no, he's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth everything. And people um, people will turn to Christianity for many many different reasons. They'll, they'll maybe they'll join a church because they they love the community. Or maybe they'll join the church because they they love the conservative values. Maybe they'll join the church because they they love the the worship or the programming or whatever. People will join Christianity for lots of different reasons, but people turn from Christianity for really basically just one reason. is they find Jesus to be lacking. He's not He's not worth it because he didn't give them what they wanted, which tells us, right, that, that they want something besides Jesus. And if there's anything that we know about, about the gospel is that it's about Jesus. He, he's not a means to something else. He's the end. And heaven surrounds him and heaven's in love with him and, and, and we ought to be as well. And he blesses us with wonderful things, but but he's the thing. <laughs> he's the center and, and that's what we want and that's why he's worth it. So so how then can you and I be sure that he's our foundation? How do we know he's, he's worth it to us? And verses seven and eight, uh, give us a clue here. It says that the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated that person receives a blessing from God, right? But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So um, those, those verses reminded me uh, reminded me a lot of John the Baptist, um, who, when he began his ministry, would, would go around saying things like, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Do not these from these stones, children for Abraham, and even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is very, very Hebrews of John the Baptist, right? We were wondering last week, did Paul write Hebrews? I don't know. Maybe it's John the Baptist who wrote Hebrews. But don't, don't, um, John the Baptist is telling his audience and, and the Holy Spirit's telling us, don't rely on uh, your tradition, don't rely on uh, your parents' faith don't rely on your denomination to make you right with God. Only Jesus makes us right with God, and we enter that relationship with Him through repentance and faith. And Jesus told us the way to uh, be in relationship with Him is to be connected to Him, to, to a, abide with Him. He's the vine, and, and we're the branches, and, and we draw our life and our vitality from being in a relationship with him. And that that vitality, that life is evidenced and, and demonstrated by by fruit, um, by, by having f- proof that our life is in Christ. And, and we can get a little anxious here to be told that the the, the, the reassurance that Jesus is our foundation is through through fruit-bearing, right? Prove. Uh, your faith with your fruit. we can get a little anxious about that, and so I want to put an asterisk there. To say prove your 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 faith by your fruit, we, we need to understand what fruit is. Yes, fruit can be um, the the things that we do, uh, to God's glory, the, the things that we do to be productive, the things that we do to to expand His kingdom and to multiply, and all these different things that we talk about here at Tabernacle—that's that's great fruit, and God God's glorified by that. But let's not go quarter or every single report, you know, is is always looking for an increase in that fruit, who's, who's demanding more. It has to be progressive and it has to be you know, measurable and, and, and a um, benefit to the company all the time. That, that's not the only kind of fruit that God's looking for. Of course, it's great when he sees the fruit of love and joy and peace and the fruit of ministry and multiplication. That's great. But you know the other kind of fruit that really blesses him? You know the kind of fruit that demonstrates to us and to him and to the world that our foundation is Jesus Christ? Is the fruit of repentance. Is the fruit of failing, yes, but then getting back to Jesus, coming back to him as our foundation. My life rests upon him alone. He is the one who's forgiven me and he is the one who's given me his righteousness and my status before God is in him and not in my own successes or in my failures. So the world basically scoffs and you know, looks at a Christian who falls and says, oh, what a loser. He fell off the horse again. But Jesus looks at us and says, ah, oh, what a disciple. He'd give up, and our foundation is Christ. His foundation is Christ. Look, I, I, I can imagine there's some of you going, okay, well, all right, this maybe I think I understand Hebrews 6 uh, a little bit better, but really, come on, couldn't we have done better for Mother's Day? I, I, I get it, I understand, but let me just uh, do a little thought experiment with you for a second. Um, you know, little, little house on the street, busy street, but, you know, cute little house, um, Mom's in the uh, little um, beach chair. She's got her her magazine and her little lemonade, and a couple of couple of toddlers. Maybe one's three, one's five. They're playing in the drive. Sort of sane, even even just with the the smallest amount of concern, would say, "Hey, those kids are awfully close to the end of the driveway, and there's a it's it's there's busy traffic and so on." But mom is just. doesn't say anything, absorbed in her magazine, enjoying her lemonade, or maybe doesn't want to, you know, say anything that would bum her kids out. And you would go, where, what kind of, what kind of mother is that? What what kind of love would that be if that mother did not, out of, a sense of compassion and concern, um, that her kids thrive and are protected and are safe. What kind of mother would she be if she didn't say anything? We have a little joke in our family uh, regarding um, our our children's mother, my wife, Kathy, that uh, on her gravestone, we're gonna do her epitaph and it's gonna be two words, be careful. (laughs) Because whenever our kids go out the door, be careful, bye, be careful, be careful. And, and, And it's wonderful. Because it's her heart of protection over our kids. She's mama bear. And she's making sure they're going to be okay and wants them to be mindful of you know, everything that's out there. And have a good time, of course. But isn't that a heart of love? And doesn't God love us and care for us? So this is God's way of reminding us, look, there, there are significant perils out there, but if your foundation is Jesus, you're good. There's no other foundation that we can lay. And, and, and just to encourage you, I know we stopped at verse 8, but if you've still got Hebrews 6 open, look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You have the foundation. Now build on it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of its truths, uh, even the thinking. Help us to grow. Lord, thank you for your protective love for your children. I thank you for your wise warnings that teach us um, not to uh, to take things for granted, uh, but to drill deeper uh, and to grow and to mature in our understanding of how Jesus is our foundation. And through ongoing faith and repentance, we can live lives, whether we're having good days or bad days, where you are glorified, not only in the ways that you're growing, love and joy and peace in us, but also in the ways that you're growing us in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray.